We're going into uh, another session of question and answer in our Searching for Answer series. The phone number, as always, will be on your screen at the bottom of the slides, ready for you uh, to, to text in any questions you may have throughout our service today. Today, we're going to talk about questions about relationships, dating, gender, and sexuality. Uh, we're we're going to cover some big stuff today. Uh, these are, I would say, probably the most crucial questions in today's culture, in our generation, of any that we've answered so far. Um, and so, just as way of review, our principles for this series. Number one, when the Word of God speaks clearly, I'm going to speak clearly. Man, when the Bible says, hey, this is the way it is, we're going to share what the Bible says. Sometimes the Bible will not have a modern-day uh, version of what we're talking about. There may be something that, hey, this thing didn't exist back then, but it'll give us a biblical principle that we can apply. And when that's the case, we'll, we'll seek to find that principle and apply that principle. And occasionally, the Bible will not speak on an area or a piece of an area. And when that happens, I'm going to give you my opinion. But when it's my opinion, I'll let you know it's my opinion. So with all that being said, we got four questions today, and each of them could be an entire message, so let's go quickly. Uh, first question is this. My boyfriend of one and a half years used to be a Christian, but he now no longer believes in God. I brought him to church several times, but it hasn't helped. This has become a major issue in our relationship and has caused many other problems. Send help, please, smiley face emoji. Uh, one of the most powerful questions that I think we received in this series. In fact, I believe this one was on a connection card. We had this before we started the series, and I've been looking forward to the chance to answer this question because this question breaks my heart because I've seen this young lady, not this specific young lady, but versions of her in the last 12, 13 years that I've served in youth ministry. I've seen this story take place time and time and time again, and can I tell you Sweetheart, it never ends well. It just doesn't go well when a believer dates a non-believer. My heart breaks for you this morning. My good news for you is the Bible speaks very clearly on this. And I can give you what I believe is very sound, very wise, very biblical advice. The bad news for you is you may not like it. Um, but here's what the Bible says. My job is not to make you happy my job is to help you and protect you um, and to use the word of God to do that. So 2 Corinthians chapter 6, very famously very clear on this topic. It says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. When it says yoked together, it's this picture of two oxen that would be uh, put together with, with a yoke so that they would maximize their power. They would move together in the same direction. They would move together for the same purpose. And in so doing, they would increase their ability to pull a load. So the word of God says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For he says, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial, which was a, a demonic god? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. In other words, God lives in you, young lady. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them 
and be separate, says the Lord. Um, The Bible is absolutely abundantly clear that we as Christians are never to enter into romantic relationships with unbelievers. Now, obviously, this is not meant as a condemnation or a put down to this young lady. She says, hey, he used to be a Christian. Uh, So presumably when this relationship started, he was a professing believer, probably showed some some evidence, some fruit of that. And at some point in time, maybe something happened, uh, but he decided, you know what, I no longer believe this. So this isn't meant to say, hey, you should have never dated the guy. This isn't meant to say, hey, you messed up or you've been in sin or, or anything like that. What I am going to say is you're a whole lot better off without him. Um, you, you do not need to continue in this relationship with this young person. So the Bible is clear for us to never enter into romantic relationships with unbelievers. Now I say enter into because the Bible does speak in the book of 1 Corinthians about a situation where two unbelievers are married and one of them comes to Jesus. One of them gets saved, and the Bible says, hey, if you get saved and your spouse is not saved, this is not a get-out-of-marriage-free card. Uh, This is not a, okay, I'm better than you, I'm out. He says to stay in the relationship, stay in the marriage, as long as the unbelieving partner will allow, uh, and be light in that situation, be a blessing in that situation. Uh, That's not your situation, though. Uh, Dating is a lot different than marriage, and you have not committed your life to this person You have not made vows before the Lord. You have not entered into a covenant with this individual. Um, And so I think the biblical advice is absolutely to break up with him. Uh, The reality is, you've already said, it's tough. It's causing issues. It's it's created major problems in our relationship. So I think deep down inside, you probably know this is the best thing. Uh, I know a lot of times the the things that, that will pop up that will prevent us from maybe doing that is, hey, I, I don't want him to think that I think I'm better than him or that I'm holier than thou or that somehow I'm, I'm perfect and he's not. I don't want to leave him and push him away from God. Um, and, and those are good motivations and, and come from a good heart. The reality is you already see the fact that you're with him is not bringing him to Jesus. Uh, if, if, if he wanted that, he could pursue it. And you staying with him is not going to make that easier. It's going to really make it easier for him to say, I don't need this because she's sticking with me anyway. Um, And so the reality is breaking up with him could be his wake-up call. It may not. Um, I can't promise that it will. Hopefully it would. Hopefully he would see, okay, uh, that's what I need. And and recognize, hey, this girl's got convictions. This girl, I had something special. Um, But just because he turns around next week and says, okay, I'm a Christian now, doesn't mean get back together with him. Uh, you're going to need some fruit of that. You're going to need some evidence of that over a period of time. He already has once said he was a Christian and, and fallen away. Um, be gentle, be honorable, be humble, but be firm and be quick. Don't put this off. Don't wait until after his birthday next week. Don't wait until after you see what he gets you for Christmas. Uh, don't, don't, don't hold on to this uh, just to see what happens. Um, I would say this week, uh, don't do it in a text message or a Facebook message or Snapchat, like face-to-face. You've been with the guy for a year and a half. Show him the respect uh, to sit down with him eyeball to eyeball and say, look, um, we're going in different directions. Uh, you've seen the, the problems this has caused. You've seen the strife in our, in our relationship. doesn't mean I don't still care about you. doesn't mean God doesn't love you. doesn't mean I'm better than you. But we're going in different directions. That's the picture Paul paints when he points to being yoked together. 
He says, look, you got to be yoked to something that's going the same way. Because if you're yoked to somebody and you're trying to pull this direction and he's trying to pull this direction, what's going to happen? You're not going to get very far. You're going to be really frustrated. You're going to be really exhausted. Um, and, and you're going to miss on where you really need to go. You're not going to make it where God really wants you to be. Um, so, so my absolute black and white, 100% scriptural advice is to break up with them and to do it quickly. Um, that part is all clear in scripture. And I want to give you some advice from me that you can take or leave at the end. Um, I'd advise you as well, once you break up to him, to take some time away from dating in general. Uh, you've been with somebody for a year and a half. I don't know how long of that year and a half he hasn't been serving God, but presumably for quite a while, as it's already caused significant problems. Um, you've, you've been in a dysfunctional relationship. Uh, and I guarantee you that's had more ramifications on your spiritual life than you even recognize right now. Uh, take some time to focus on you and Jesus. I'm not somebody who's like, date Jesus. I hate that phrase. I think it's super cheesy, Christians. Uh, but, uh, but focus on your walk with Jesus. I'm sorry if I just offended somebody. Like, I'm dating Jesus right now. Okay, that's you. Uh, just the, this is my opinion. So you can set this aside. Uh, but focus on your time with God. Focus on your walk with him. Build, rebuild that because the, the, there's some things there that, that you don't even realize that this relationship is affected right now. Um, so that's my advice for you. Um, second question, what does the Bible say about interracial dating? I think we actually had this one in a post-message question at one point, but I want to make sure that we can speak to it specifically and scripturally. Uh, this question says, I mean, interracial dating in all contexts, such as Mexicans with whites, blacks with whites, Asians with blacks, etc. not asking about one particular type of interracial relationship, although the world seems to look differently at certain ones. I know that in Genesis 11, it describes how different ethnicities came about and discusses the Tower of Babel. My issue is no one seems to be one particular race these days. We are all mixed with something. So we've already established in question one that we're never to enter into a relationship with somebody who doesn't know Jesus. And, and let me say this too. I should have hit this in question one, but real quick to clarify. We live in the South where almost everybody calls themselves a Christian. Enter into a relationship with somebody where there's some evidence of some faith. Just because they go to church, just because they call themselves a Christian, just because they're part of the FCA or FCS or, or this Bible club or this youth group, that, that, that doesn't mean they're actually pursuing Jesus. You want to be yoked together with somebody who's moving in the same direction you are. It doesn't mean that they're necessarily know all the same scriptures you know or have all the same spiritual experiences, but they're moving the same way and moving at the same pace. They're pursuing God with their life. Um, so, so we know that anything outside of that is not God's best. But what about his racial standards? Uh, for centuries, people have used the Bible, especially the Old Testament, to proclaim that interracial dating and marriage is wrong, that it's sinful. There are a few key passages that they typically point to. Uh, I'm going to share with you one of those. It's Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. This is one of the most strong and direct passages they stand on. Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 3 says this, says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering in to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, Mosquito Bites, all these people, <laughs> seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you've defeated them, do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters 
for your sons. So there it is, right? The clarity of Scripture. The Bible says not to intermarry. Interracial marriage is wrong. Don't do it. Except this is what we call taking a passage out of context. Uh, With the exception of a little over half of the chapters of the book of Proverbs, the Bible is not written for verses to stand alone. The Bible is written in context. There are a few chapters in the book of Proverbs where they're just one-off statements. Here's a piece of wisdom that doesn't necessarily connect to the one before it or the one after it. Um, but, but except for that, the Bible is written where, where it's a different genre. Different books are different genres. Some are books of history. Some are books of poetry. Some are books of, of narrative, of story. Some are letters. Uh, but, but the verses connect to the verses before them and after them. There is a context to them. Uh, Deuteronomy is one of the books of the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, which exist to give the, the Israel nation, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, their foundation. This is what we believe. This is our history. This is where we came from. This is what God has called us to. Um, and in this context, Deuteronomy chapter 7 is actually the continuation of a speech, a sermon that Moses is giving starting in Deuteronomy chapter 6. So let me give you the context of how this conversation begins in Deuteronomy 6. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 3, Moses starts this conversation. He says, These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and the children after them may fear the Lord your God as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear Israel and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised. So what's happening is the Israelites are on the edge of the promised land. God's delivered them out of slavery. He's delivered them out of Egypt. He's taken them across the Red Sea. They've wandered in the desert 40 years. They're they're finally to the place where they're about to go in and take the land that God has promised them. And Moses says, hey, God's given me some standards. He's given me some rules. He's given me some stuff that we're supposed to live by as we get ready to go in here. And so here they are. And so he begins this conversation, this this monologue about this is what God has said. And it transitions into chapter 7. And he says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess, drives out before you many nations, etc., etc., and then he says, do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, even in that This English translation, it didn't make it onto our screen, but it ends right there after sons with a comma. Uh, It's not a period. It's not the end of a thought. It's not even a complete thought. We're not even like having to go read the rest, the next sentence to combine it with this sentence. It's not even the end of a sentence. This is one of the funny things about biblical verses. The verses are not divinely expired, okay? What happened is somebody went back and added verses in to make it easier for us to find stuff and easier for us to read, and I'm glad that they did. But that doesn't mean that every time they put a verse break here instead of there, that, hey, this is the expression of a complete thought. In fact, in almost every case, one verse is not the expression of a complete thought. We have to see what else is going on. So let's finish this thought. Verse 3 says, do not any marry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Verse 4 says, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. Why did God command the Israelites not to intermarry with the tribes around them? Because he wanted to preserve the purity of their race. No. Because he didn't want them to be with people of other color. No. Because he didn't want them to subject themselves to a situation where somebody took them away from following God. 
said, look, these people around you, they don't honor me. They don't worship me. They don't follow me. And so if you start marrying with them, what's going to happen? Is it easier to pull somebody up or easier to pull somebody down? It's a lot easier to pull somebody down. You got more leverage. And so if you intermarry with them, they're likely to take you away from following me, so don't do it. Why am I confident that this does not have ethnic or racial implications? Because of the entire context of Scripture. Uh, in fact, the man who gave this speech, the man who gave this sermon himself, Moses, was married to an African black woman. Uh, we find this in the book of Numbers. He, she was called a Moabite, uh, but we didn't know exactly. Her name was Zipporah. Uh, and so in the book of Numbers chapter 12, Miriam and Aaron begin to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Cush was the nation south of Egypt, roughly the, the area of Ethiopia today. He had married somebody from African blackness, this Jewish guy. And he was the one who, who, by the way, he'd already married her before God chose him. He was married to her. He had mixed kids. And God chose him and said, hey, you're going to be the one to deliver my people out of Israel. Why? Because God doesn't care what color you marry. He doesn't care what ethnicity you're with. Moses married somebody who loved God, who worshiped God. In fact, her father was, was brilliant, an incredibly wise man named Joash who, who gave Moses wonderful advice. Uh, and, and so he found a good family. He found people who loved God, who honored God, who worshiped God, and he married into that. And if you read the rest of this story in Numbers 12, Moses' brother and sister are, are, are coming against him because he married a black woman. And you know which side God took? He took Moses' side and he took it hard. He gave Miriam leprosy because she spoke out against Moses. Now he ended up healing her and, and, and she was delivered and there's a lot of context there. But God made it pretty clear which side he came down on here. He didn't leave there, there, there to be any room for confusion. And unfortunately, some people who I believe have some very ill motives have taken the word of God and have corrupted it and tried to apply it to, to cause division amongst people, to cause hate to come up against people, to cause us to mistreat someone simply because of the, the color of person they happen to choose as their mate or because their parents happen to be two different colors. And as believers who read the word of God, who study the word of God, who reflect the heart of God, there's no room for us to embrace that kind of hate. There's no room for us to speak that kind of ignorance. There's no room for us to reinforce those kind of things. We need to embrace this reality that God is okay with this. Not just okay with this, that we see it evidenced in Scripture. By the way, I, I go to this a lot, but I think it's really strong. The genealogy of Jesus in the book of Matthew. If you go through the book of Matthew, they, it tells us this guy came from this guy who came from this guy who came from this guy, Right? Two times in the book of Matthew, it actually pauses from telling us about dudes to mention some women who are in the genealogy, actually a few more times than that. But two of those women who are in the genealogy weren't Jews. We, we find Rahab, a prostitute, by the way, which that's a whole other sermon, uh, in the genealogy of Jesus. She was a Canaanite. Then we find Ruth, a Moabite who had married Boaz of the tribe of Judah. And, and, and both times, these people were embraced. They were loved. Why? Because they didn't just represent their ethnicity or their tribe or their color. They chose to worship God. 
In fact, if you want to throw all of it out and flip it on its head, the Bible also says this. It says, hey, Israel, if a foreigner moves in amongst you and chooses to worship your God and observe your laws, then treat him like one of your own. Why? Because it ain't about color. And it's not about ethnicity. And it's not about language. It's about the heart. Are they worshiping God? Or are they serving God? Now, if you're here today and you're in that situation where you're married to somebody who doesn't know God, who doesn't serve God, pray for them, love them, be there for them, continue to believe that God has something for them. But let's not enter into those relationships willingly. Uh, but man, when it comes to race, when it comes to color, if that's who you feel, man, this person has the values that I'm looking for, this person has the heart after God that I'm looking for, uh, then I don't think there's any reason for you not to pursue that. Uh, so write this down. I put this in, in the notes. The scriptural principle is clear. Do not date or marry a non-believer. The color of their skin is not the issue. Question number three. What gender do you identify with? Somebody submitted this question. True story. Uh, don't think it was meant to be a serious question. I think it was meant to be a funny question. But I'll give you my opinion on this one. Uh, you can figure out which one you think I identify with. I'll let you make your own assumption there. Uh, but let's talk about gender. Let, let's talk about transgender. Let, let's talk about this thing that, man, back in two thir- 2013 when I did my first question and answer series in the church, this wasn't even on the radar. This wasn't even discussed. This wasn't even something like it was... Uh, our, our culture didn't even have a, a controversy about this. But here we are in 2018, uh, and it's a big deal. So what does the Bible say? How do we respond? What do we do with questions of gender? Uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, I think it's always helpful to go back to the beginning. I think Genesis 1, 2, and 3 give us a lot of principles for life. I'm a big believer in what we call the rule of first, that the first time something appears in Scripture is, is where we see how it was ideally supposed to be done, what God's original plan was. And in Genesis 1.27, it says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 1.27, famous verse, famous principle. God created us in his own image. And in the midst of this declaration that we are a reflection of God, that we're made in the image of God, we get this little almost add on, almost throw in thought that he made them male and female. In other words, he made Adam and he made Eve. In other words, Adam was not created in the image of God and Eve was not. Or Eve was not created in the image of God and Adam was not. Adam was made in the image of God. Eve was made in the image of God. His maleness was in God's image. Her femaleness was in God's image. Their gender was part of their reflection of God's image. Now, what we've done and what people will tell you in our generation is there's a difference between biological sex and gender, that, that we've divorced these two ideas, that you have a biological sex, that your chromosomes, your body parts, I'll try to be PG as much as I can, uh, implicate, um, but then there's the gender is a psychological feeling. It's, it's something that's inside of us. Um, and so in God's word, we see God, who, by the way, is not a sexual being, identified with a gender, choosing to identify himself by a gender, and saying, I made you in my image and gave you gender. 
It's part of the very beginning. It's part of the foundation of humanity. Um, we can come up with as many generations as we can imagine, generations, as many genders as we can imagine. We, we can come up with as many expressions of gender as we desire, um, but it's not going to change the reality that God created us male and God created us female. This is where the word of God falls. Um, as such, I wouldn't advise anybody to let your child choose their gender identity. I wouldn't advise you to leave it neutral uh, and let them come up with their own expression, their own feeling. Um, I would be pretty affirmative. Hey, you're a boy. You're a girl. My, my kids right now are obsessed with gender. They're in this phase where they, they, they can identify who's what, right? And, oh, this morning, uh, I, I brought Judah in, and I checked him in, and Kirsty is watching him before service, and he goes, she a girl, daddy. She not a boy like you and me. Uh, it's like, correct. Uh, <laughs> sorry, Kirsty. Put you on blast like that. Uh, but, but yeah, he, he, he's obsessed with identifying, okay, this is a boy, this is a girl. It's just this phase, this, this place that he's in in his life. And, and I think it's interesting that a four-year-old can figure this out, but our society can't. Um, and, and, and I don't mean to be dismissive or condescending because I know there is real pain expressed in this desire to be transgender. I know there's real brokenness expressed. Um, I, I, I believe that, that God loves people who are going through this. I believe that as the church, we should be compassionate towards them. We should love them through their struggle. Uh, but I don't believe that means that we should affirm or encourage them in their struggle, if that makes sense. Uh, that that we, we should not tell them, hey, this is who you are. Uh, and, and we should not celebrate them finding their truth uh, and, and embracing their reality. Um, how that looks as far as you've got a coworker who all of a sudden decides that she wants to be John instead of Jeanette or, or whatever that situation is, I don't know that I can give you a firm biblical standard on this. I think we're going to have to pray through and discern through some things. I think generally speaking, there's no reason for us to be disrespectful. And so I don't think you have to be on a campaign and come in and like call them by their birth name in an insulting or, or downgrading manner. Um, I don't think that necessarily means we just go with the flow either. I, I don't know where the right answer is. Um, I think we have to be prayed up. I think we have to lean into the Holy Spirit. I think there's going to be some situations where uh, we are called to, to, to stand. And I think there's going to be some situations where people know where we stand, and we just need to love them in the midst of the situation as well. Uh, and I, I don't know that I can tell you black and white, every situation is the same. I'll tell you this. Um, my family, I have a cousin who is a hermaphrodite, was born with... Uh, parts from both genders, and I apologize to the parents who have to go home and explain that to a kid who didn't know that was a thing, uh, but, but this is real in my family, um, and so this individual's parents decided at birth, which is pretty much the custom, which direction are we going to go, uh, and they made a decision uh, and chose a gender, and this person is now full-blown adult, uh, and to my knowledge, has continued to embrace the gender that mom and dad chose. Uh, 
if they came out next week and said, you know what, this isn't who I am, I think I'm more this, I think I'd have to respond with a lot of grace. Because I know the reality that the brokenness of this world, this isn't the way God designed it, this isn't the way God set it up, but because of our fallen, broken, sinful world, we've had genetic mutations, things have happened, and not everything goes the way that God designed it to go. Um, and so in those instances, the science calls the, them intrasex individuals, people who have male and female organs. Um, I think in the case of an intersex individual, we need to respond with a whole lot of grace uh, because that's somebody who faces a challenge that I've never faced and most of us have never faced. Uh, and I think it's very understandable there'd be a lot of confusion uh, and, and a lot of pull in different directions. Uh, and I think God has a, a, an extreme grace for them. Uh, I stand on Romans, which says that where sin abounds, grace much more abounds, and we live in a generation where sin has brought a whole lot of junk, a whole lot of crookedness, a whole lot of things that don't go God's design, um, even in our biological being. Um, and I think God ex- responds to that with grace. And so I think as the church, we should respond to that at grace. Now, I know obviously a lot of times we may not know, hey, this transgender person, are they intersex? Do they actually have something going on biologically that explains this, or is this all psychological? Uh, And there again, I think that's why we need to respond to people with love and with grace. I don't think it means we have to jump on every bandwagon and and celebrate what the world celebrates, Um, because I know there are a lot of people who are just confused. You can find many stories of people who, hey, I, I actually went through a sex change surgery, and it was wrong. I realized that, wasn't the, that didn't solve my problem. That wasn't it for me. My emptiness was still there. My depression was still there. My discouragement was still there. Uh, and so I, I know we're not supposed to just celebrate every situation, um, but I think we need to be cautious in, in drawing a line and saying, hey, you're wrong, uh, because we don't always know everything that's going on beneath the surface. Ultimately, we point people to Jesus. Ultimately, we, we point them to his best, um, and, and, and we love them where they're at, that doesn't mean that we settle for where they're at. Uh, so hopefully that makes sense. Um, I saw a story this week. There's a guy in Denmark who's 69 years old, and he's suing to have his birthday moved back 20 years so he can be 49 years old. Uh, and he said, I feel 49. Uh, I, he said, I went to the doctor, and they told me I have the body of a 45-year-old. Uh, and he said that my birthday being saying I'm 69 years old has prevented me from getting jobs. It's caused a lot of discrimination against me. And he said, and it hurts me on Tinder. True story. Uh, He said, when a woman sees me as 69, she's not interested. But if she saw me as 49, so uh, true story. Uh, I say that to say this. We spent a lot of time over the last 50 years telling kids they can be anything they want to be. And here we are. Uh, we have people who deny their biological race. I don't know if you remember the story of Rachel Dolezal, the NAACP president of the Spokane chapter in Washington State, who was fully white, uh, but said she identifies as black. Um, we, we, we've spent a lot, lot of time telling people they can be anything they want. And now we have a generation who thinks they can be anything they want. Uh, and I think... It's damaging to people. I think it harms them when they live out a lie, when they live out something that is not true. Um, And so we need to call people to God's best. We need to call people to truth. 
uh, and we need to help them lovingly, graciously, compassionately recognize this is who you are. It's not that. So here's what I'm interested in. What are we going to talk about the next time we have a question and answer series? <laughs> like, I, I never thought this would be a real topic in church when I started, when I went to Bible college, when I interned. Like, this was never on my radar. So I'm really interested to see what's next. Question four. Uh, last question for us this morning. I know Christians think homosexuality is an abomination. I have a gay family member. As a Christian, how should I treat them? Is there any way for them to go to heaven? Real life conversation right here. Um, I know a lot of believers that are in this situation with a homosexual family member, homosexual loved one, uh, co-worker, friend, etc. So how do I treat them? How do I respond to them? I think we respond to a homosexual the same way we respond to anybody. We love them. We point them to Jesus. We love them, we love them, we love them, we love them, we love them. I don't think if you have a homosexual family member, this means you reject them, you shun them. I don't think it means you never go to their house. Um, Obviously, there, there are different lifestyles, and there may be somebody living such a ostentatious lifestyle that you may have to separate from them based on just the, the, the obnoxious things they're doing, but that's not just homosexuals. That can be heterosexuals as well. Um, but I don't think we take and say, okay, just because you're gay, you're not invited to Thanksgiving, or you're somehow sitting, now you're sitting at the kid's table, now you're somehow less of a, of a human. Um, it's still your family. You still love them. You're still there for them. You still treat them like you do anybody else. Uh, the reality is, Homosexuality appears in the Bible seven times. Seven times, Scripture refers to homosexuality in in different ways. Sometimes it describes a homosexual experience. Sometimes it talks about homosexuality. But all seven times that the Bible talks about homosexuality are negative. It's never positive. It's never neutral. It's never questionable. It's always addressed in a negative fashion. I'm going to give you one example for the sake of time today. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 says, We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the law righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexual immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. So this homosexuality and this list of things that are contrary to sound doctrine. Uh, and, and I love that it phrases it the way it does. It says practicing homosexuals. I don't believe that being attracted to somebody of the same sex is sin. Because I don't believe the temptation is sin. Uh, I, I believe Jesus was tempted. Uh, And so somebody who has a temptation, who has an inclination towards somebody of the same gender, that is not in and of itself sinful. Uh, Acting on that inclination, practicing homosexuality, as this phrase here in 1 Timothy, is when we cross the line beyond what is God's best. I think all of us have inclinations, all of us have desires, all of us have urges that are contrary to God's best for us. Uh, And all of us have to learn to control those. All of us have to learn not to indulge those. Yours may look 
like something we talked about the last few weeks, alcohol or marijuana. Yours may look like, hey, I'm married, but I still have this desire for other people. It may look a lot of different ways. Um, All of us have things that we desire that aren't God's best. And all of us are called by Scripture, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to submit those to God's will and say, okay, God, I recognize this isn't your best for me, and I'm going to do, get this thing under control. This passage in 1 Timothy, as I told you, is one of seven. If you want to see all seven, if you want to hear about all seven, um, I addressed this back in 2013 and went through each one. Uh, and you can find the podcast. I actually went today to make sure it's still up, and it is. So you can go to citychurchlb.com slash messages, um, or you can search for City Church of All the Branch on iTunes. If you go to iTunes, you have to do City Church one word. If it's City Comma Church, it won't come up. So City Church one word of Olive Branch, um, and then look for Glad You Asked Part 3 from September 22nd, 2013. Um, and you can see all, all seven passages in Scripture uh, that discuss homosexuality and why I think they build a very strong case uh, that despite what our culture may say, uh, despite what our generation may believe, that this is never God's best for people. Uh, just because it's never God's best, again, doesn't mean that we reject people. doesn't mean we put them down. Uh, it, we, a lot of times you'll hear this, right? Like, well, their sin is no worse than my sin. So, so what do we do with that statement? Uh, this sin is not worse than my sin. The reality is, yes, the Bible teaches us that all sin is equal and that all sin separates us from God. All sin makes me unworthy of being in God's presence. All sin makes us uh, ineligible to spend eternity with God apart from Jesus. So all sin is equal there. However, all sin is not treated the same way in Scripture. If you read the Old Testament, there are certain sins that get much worse penalties and punishments than other sins. Um, Here's where I think homosexuality is so damaging. I think it's so damaging not because it's somehow worse. I think it's damaging because it's embracing an identity that is contrary to God's word. Right? So, so let's say I struggle with stealing. I'm a kleptomaniac. I like, I like the five-finger discount, right? Uh, so, so I go to Target, and I see a pack of bubble gum or whatever, you know, and I decide I'm going to walk out of there with this. This is something I've never really struggled with, so I'm just kind of imagining. Uh, so, so. I don't identify myself as Troy the thief. It doesn't affect who I hang out with significantly. It doesn't affect how I portray myself, how I dress, what relationships I choose or don't choose. Um, It's sin, and it separates me from God, and it's not okay, and I need to get it under control. I need to repent. I need to turn from it. Homosexuality does all the damage that stealing does, but then it layers on top of that. Now I'm choosing an identity that isn't what God's given me. I'm embracing something. What what do we just sing? I am who you say I am, right? Anytime I choose an identity outside of what God says that I am, it's going to lead me to a place outside of what God has for me. Now, all of us do this, right? We all choose identities. We we choose to be defined by our past. We choose to be defined by our sin in certain areas. Uh, So, but, but, but homosexuality chooses an outright presentation to the world. This is my Facebook status. This is how I define myself in looking for someone. I am defined by this thing that is contrary to what God says about me. And that's really, really dangerous. Uh, not because it makes me less worthy of God than any other sin. All sin makes me unworthy of God. But because it's going to lead me to future sin and to more sin, and sin stacked on top of sin. It's going to take me far, far 
from God's best. And so this is why I think the Bible is so clear about the danger of homosexuality, because it's, it's embracing an identity. And I would say the same thing in most cases of transgender. It's embracing an identity that is contrary to what God has said about me. And that's always, always going to be a dangerous thing. So I want to close with this. The book of John chapter 8 gives us a story of Jesus responding to sexual sin. And it wasn't the sin of homosexuality, so this is not a Bible speaking clearly. This is a biblical principle. This is Jesus responding to somebody who's been caught with with sexual sin. And I think it's really informative for us as the church because this question said, how do I treat my family member? What do I do with my family? So for your family member, for your coworker, for your loved one who embraces a homosexual lifestyle, this is how I would tell you to respond. John chapter 8 Starting in verse 3, it says, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So Jesus very famously bent down. He started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any of you who is without sin throw the first stone at her. First application from this passage is for us as the church. When it comes to homosexuality, I think we get really caught up in throwing stones. I think, I think our history is very, this is wrong, this is sinful, and we're going to stand against this. We're, we're going to wink at all this other kind of sin. We're, I, I, here, here's what I would say. So when I, I started work at Taco Bell, I was 16 years old. Uh, and I got hired into a very sinful, very dark place at 16. Uh, and, and I had three managers who were sleeping with, living with their partners of opposite sex. I had one manager who I came to find out was homosexual. And when I found out that he was homosexual, I was far more disturbed by his sin than the sin of these other three who I was comfortable with. And I remember I was showering one morning, getting ready to go to work, when the conviction of the Holy Spirit hit me. And said, why does your heart break in one situation and you don't seem to care about this other one? I love all those people. I love all of them. And my heart breaks that all of them are not living out my best for them. Why are you treating one so much differently? And so I would say for us as the church, I know for me, my response, if I'm not careful to to homosexuals can be different than how I would respond to other sin, and that's not okay. Jesus says, he who's without sin cast the first stone. So, so I gotta deal with my sin first. Doesn't mean I can't st- speak up. Doesn't mean we shouldn't speak up. We should. But we need to always be looking at ourselves, always be dealing with the plank in our eye before we deal with the sliver in somebody else's, right? Um, so this is Jesus' first response. But he doesn't stop with he who's without sin cast the f- first stone. He goes on. He says, again, he stepped down, he wrote on the ground. At this those who heard him began to go away one at a time, the elder ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, he said, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Don't you love Jesus? Don't you love Jesus? She had committed a capital sin. This was a sin that was punishable by death according to the law. But Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law. I came to be the law. In other words, you committed a sin worthy of death. I'm going to die for you. And that's what he's done for me. I've committed sin 
worthy of death, worthy of eternal separation from him. And he chose to die for me, to take the penalty for my sin. And then he says, go now and leave your life of sin. Where's the right place to be? We talk all the time here about Jesus. John chapter one says he came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. We have to marry these two. They're not enemies, they're not opponents, they're, they're together. Jesus in John chapter eight is full of grace. He's full of truth. He says, I don't condemn you. I'm gonna die for you. I'm standing in your place, that's grace. Then he says, go and leave your life of sin. That's truth. This is where we have to be, church. We gotta be full of grace. We gotta point to Jesus. We gotta point that, hey, I'm just as sinful as you are. My sin has separated me from God just as much as your has. I'm not standing here better than you, but I love you enough to speak the truth. Jesus says, go and leave your life of sin. And that's a hard thing to do for somebody who's embraced an identity that's contrary to God's word. There's a lot of entanglements. There's a lot of challenges. There's a lot of relapse. There's a lot that goes into that. That's not just a split second decision. We gotta walk with people through it. That's why we say you're free to struggle here. Because man, there's gonna be some struggle getting out of a homosexual lifestyle. But we believe in a God who delivers. We believe in a God who brings freedom. I've seen situations where, where somebody left that lifestyle and God gave them a desire for the, the opposite sex and now they're married and, and happy and, and doing those things, I've seen where he didn't. And where, hey, I still have a desire just for this gender. And they've had to learn to discipline themselves and submit that and say, look, even though I'm attracted to this gender, I'm not gonna act on that because I know it's not God's best. Um, I've seen it go both ways. I can't promise how it may go in a specific situation. I can't promise this. God's grace is sufficient. It's sufficient. It's more than enough. He's got grace for all situations. He's got grace for homosexuals. He's got grace for transgenders. He's got grace for a girl who's dating somebody who's not a Christian. He's got grace for me. And he's got grace for you. I'm so grateful for that. Jesus says, I don't condemn you. But he says, go leave your life of sin. That's where we need to be, church. That's how we stand in a culture that is very ungodly, in a culture that's only gonna get more ungodly, in a culture that's gonna surprise us by the 2020 or 2021 when we do a question and answer series, and like, whoo, where'd that come from? We didn't see it coming, right? But just because we don't see it coming doesn't mean God didn't. And doesn't mean he doesn't have grace for that situation, for grace for that challenge, that he doesn't have wisdom for us in order for us to be the church, to stand strong, to, to walk in grace, and walk in truth together. That's where he's called us, amen? Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, I thank you for the truth of your word. God, I thank you that your word endures. I thank you that your word is true. God, I thank you that, that your word brings us Jesus, and Jesus is full of grace. So God, I pray that, that anybody watching online today, anybody who listens to the podcast, anybody who's in this room would be confronted today with Jesus Christ, who's full of grace for their situation. God, I pray that no one would be condemned, that no one would be put down, but they would recognize your incredible love for them, but God, they would recognize that you love them too much to leave them where they are. God, you love us too much to leave us in our sin. You call us to you. You call us to holiness. You call us to righteousness. You call us to your best. So God, corporately today, help us to reach out and grab that hand and grab hold of your best. Lord, whether our sin is something we discussed today or something totally different, God, you're calling us out of darkness and you're calling us into light. 
So God, let us take hold of that light today. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you don't condemn us. We thank you that Jesus Christ died in our place, that our sin is paid for. And God, we want your holiness. We want your best. So bring us to that place through your strength, through your spirit. We thank you for deliverance. We thank you for freedom. We thank you for your wisdom, for your grace, for your truth today. It's in Jesus' name.